You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. You know what? Wonder no longer. Because it's fun. That's why. <laughs> I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Natanya Barron. And this is episode 118, Passing the Torch. So, we should probably explain what's going on, but it's not my story to tell, so I'm going to stare at Rowena until she says something. Yeah, so um, after 118 plus episodes and many years and a lot of fantastic times with my co-hosts and all of our fabulous guests, I am stepping away as a primary co-host of World Building for Masochists um, because life is crazy. And it turns out that, like, just because your kids get older, they don't need you less. And when you, like, take more employment, it takes more of your time. And and writing books is also a real-time suck. And so it, I am, I am not stepping away from the podcast because I'm not still having a fantastic time, but because I don't have the time to give it what it needs anymore. And I love it too much to neglect it like a sad plant, like the plants in my office. <laughs> I'm sorry, plants in my office. I neglect you. We, we don't want to be but, sad ferns. No. But we don't. We don't. So, um, yeah, it's it's really weird to be, like, saying this because I've had such a fantastic time over the past few years. Well, and this weird crackpot idea that we had turned out <laughs> to actually go somewhere. Who knew? Well, and we're not going to let you disappear on us entirely. Of you will be lassoed no, back in. I am... <laughs> I, I am happy to guest at any time, and if you need a a temporary step-in co-host because someone needs a vacation or, you know, stuff. Well, yeah, stuff. Plus, we're, I'll be around. We I'm are, sure I will be around We are lot. still putting together the Traveling Light anthology. And, yeah, we are. And that's... That is still happening. <laughs> That's still going to suck some of our time away. And, and, yeah, it will. But it, in a wonderful way. In a wonderful though. way. It's been a really good time suck. It'll be a time suck that won't suck. <laughs> exactly. That should be on a mug. It's given away at a corporate retreat that actually That actually suck. would but be. That would be really good, like, corporate swag. <laughs> For the corporation that, like, wants to seem cool. Like, that's what they give you. Even though they're not. They're definitely not. No. No, they never are. But you are cool, and we're going to miss you terribly. You're missing I am going to so miss terribly. seeing your lovely faces every other week and, and hanging out with all the cool people who, who tend to come by here. Cool people like, like Tanya, who we first, we first encountered on this podcast as a guest, and now you're here again. I am. You just can't get Tell us more about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, I mean, that was such a fun, fun day. And when um, our lovely Cass and Marshall reached out. Um, I was super excited to do that. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm doing often by myself. So it's really lovely to talk with people to talk about this um, with a group of people and be able to expand upon, you know, 
my little corner of the world and hopefully add some new refreshing things. I think it's cool because Rowena, you and I have a lot of similar interests in terms of fashion history. And though I am not a sewer, um, you know, I, I still think that that will be helpful because there'll be something similar, but obviously I have my own experience. And um, for me, I write a lot of historical fantasy. So I'm, I'm very often rooted in world building, but world building with, you know, the flair of, of things before and when I do write secondary worlds I'm still kind of obsessive about making sure things could have actually happened like I could just make it all up I could just completely wing it but I tend not to so I've had an exciting year as a writer my kids are finally old enough now where they they are easier but it took me a while to get there they're almost one of them is almost through high school and I have two series that are going to be coming out in the next two years so um the first is my Arthuriana feminist for telling the queens of fate series and then I have another one that I just sold that I can't talk too much about but it is regency and magical and I and it's actually the story that inspired thread talk which is what I've done in the past on fashion history and I was doing research on chintz fabric and decided to just share that with the world on Twitter which I will not call what people want us to call it and and yeah. kind of just yeah. uh, and this and, and and coincidentally, my dorky research about weird names in the Middle Ages is one of the things that kind of brought me to the forefront of this group. And one thing led to another, and now I'm stuck here. I mean, I'm here because it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That's super exciting. I am super excited about that Regency project. That sounds so much fun. And I, I will tell you, Natanya, I just read Queen of None and thoroughly enjoyed it oh i'm glad such a such a refreshing take on arthuriana like just i read a fair bit of it and some of it's very samey samey and this was not at all same this was differenty differenty and differenty, i really enjoyed I, I did try i did try and and the second and third books are very much more in that vein um <gasps> but, but yeah i'm 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 hopeful that it will continue to do so. It's funny, the few things, it's out for arc readers right now and someone said, bad things just keep happening to this woman. And I was like, do you know it's what Arthuriana. it was like? Also, <laughs> do you know what it was like to be a woman in the Middle Ages who was like the closest in line to the throne? Not, not great. Also, I always love it when our readers get like mad that bad things happen to the characters. Like, well, it's a book. I don't. <laughs> That's where the plot I don't know comes what you expect me to do with this plot <laughs> unless things happen to the characters. I, I know. Yeah, I, I wanted to wrap them up in bubble wrap and put them somewhere safe too. But my editor says there has to be a plot. So our job is to chase them up a tree and throw rocks at them. That is our job. <laughs> and I, I love I've when done people my- tell me that I broke their heart or I, I made them lose sleep. I mean, that sounds terrible, but that's kind of my no. job. It, yeah, we. We are deniers of sleep, and that is our goal every time. I know I've done well when I feel like I owe characters an apology. Like, it's like, (laughs) wow, I did something super terrible to you. I owe you something good later on. It might not make it on the page. It might be, like, later in your life. I'm going to promise you a nice wife or something. Like, a very nice lady who will just take good care of you. We may never meet her in the story, but I I know that you're going to get. No, she exists. She exists and she is going to make you dumplings. Yes, she'll be very sweet. And feed feed them to you. Deal with all your trauma. And you will have a garden and it will will do very well and it will make you happy. Occasionally I have the thought about like writing a cozy book and then I just laugh at myself for a long time. The Regency book is cozier, but it's cozy in the Austinian way, which is like, Mm. everything's still terrible. Like they're nice to each other and it's funny, but there's like an underlying darkness. But I appreciate cozy stuff occasionally, but it's just not, I'm I'm too corrupt, I think. (laughs) 
I can't help but add politics to things. And as soon as you add politics to things, it's no longer cozy. <laughs> you, you, you just can't. You can't. I feel like cozy is also like the Oscar Wilde quote about if you want a happy ending, it depends on where you stop the story. Totally. Like, if it if it's cozy, it just depends on what part of the story you told. Because we'll just pretend that the other parts don't exist. I think about that with because I read a lot of romance because it's it's candy and it's it's great and it's wonderful for learning the chops of of writing and and you know all pacing and everything brilliant stuff. But I'm always when people are like I only want to read happily ever after books and I'm like, have you ever been in a relationship with anyone ever? <laughs> <laughs> Like that. Also, that's really boring. Like for it to be truly happily ever after. But I get it. I guess. Well, also when it's historical stuff, it's always like, okay, but I know what happens in the next ten years. Like <laughs> yeah. Beauty and the Beast. You know, it's right around the corner for France. <laughs> Shing! Uh, Princess and the Frog. Tiana and Naveen living it up in the 1920s. Hey, guess what's right around the corner, y'all? No, just, nothing could go wrong in 1929. Wrong. Nothing, no. nothing at all. <laughs> nothing, They'll be fine. Nothing. I'm sure that startup restaurant <laughs> makes it through. And I'm sure the economy of Louisiana and New Orleans just was fine. great. Coasting no problems right there. Coasting right yeah. through. And, and, I, and I'm sure that that tiny little kingdom that he's from, wherever oh, the yeah. heck it is, I'm sure it'll be unaffected by World War II. Completely, completely. Nothing happened in the Middle East, right? Wasn't he kind of from that? No. Nothing. Just, wherever he's from, you know, it was a world war. So it only affected <laughs> small parts of the world, right? Little bits here and there. And this is why we can't write cozies. Apparently not. This is why when someone pointed out that I wrote dark fantasy, I was like, no, wait. Yeah. Okay, maybe. <laughs> I, I guess. Sure. Fine. Though your promise of something good to your characters made me just imagine decades from now, somebody like finding all your errata and publishing books. It's just like, it's all these little sweet stories. of <laughs> That never saw the light of day. <laughs> that never saw the light of day. But they're all these characters just having sweet little happy moments with they made <laughs> in their retirement. Friendship bracelets. <laughs> they went on picnics. <laughs> there was tea. There was a lot of tea. I love angry tea scenes personally. I think it's one of the best when people are like trying to keep their composition <laughs> and drinking tea and trying to be polite. Oh, it's just the best. That's why I like dinner party scenes. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, oh, dinner, with a, yeah. dinner with a side of snark. Yes, thank you. It's great. <laughs> I am following within the rules of society while I want you dead. <laughs> <laughs> I vibe with that deeply. <laughs> deeply. <laughs> so now, now I'm worrying about leaving you three alone. <laughs> Time. <laughs> just don't eat any food that we offer you that's all we're saying <laughs> we, we might be fairies anyway she's heard me say too many times that i can't cook so she wouldn't take anything i gave her anyway so no. oh i'm a devastating cook so yeah it would be terrible marshall, marshall had his chance to marshall did marshall did not poison us yeah. so he <laughs> did not poison us the one that went to the us I, I I felt that would be rude and and ruin the podcast. So <laughs> I, I felt. Why didn't you poison your dinner guests? I felt it would be rude. That's a good line. I might steal that for something. I don't know when. It is yours. It is it is a gift to you, my friend. Yes. Maybe we can each try to sneak that. Oh, that'd be really funny. Somewhere. That'd be a good Easter egg. So speaking of leaving us alone, <laughs> with this being. Somewhat the end of an era and the beginning of a new one for the podcast. Uh, we thought this would be a great time to explore 
things like the transfer of power and dynasties and inheritance and how eras shift and morph and are they even really real and all that great stuff, because those can be somewhat defining to a society and to a world, or at least how a, a society tells its own story and how they sort of self-define, which is always super interesting and a thing we've talked about in various episodes, like how, how do you myth-make your own world? So thinking about all of this, and like we've already we've sort of accidentally touched on it in all these things we're talking about, what gives an era its flavor, its vibe, its itness for what it is? <laughs> I think that's a good question to kind of like parse apart too, because there's the question of what gives an era its flavor during the time that it's being lived. And there's the what gives an era its flavor from the perspective of history, nostalgia, looking back. Um, and this would be very different things, I think, like the way that we define an era kind of posthumously for it um, versus how it would have defined itself, um, I think can often look very different, even like five years later, 10 years later, 50 years later, have very different understandings. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think we like we like to fit things into very cozy boxes because it makes us feel like there's a larger narrative to the world, right? We live in such chaos. I mean, it's, it's the longer that I live, the more I'm just like, Oh, it's just all smushed together. It's just, I mean, there's some people that are living now, like it was 25 years ago and, and nothing has really changed for them because they've not moved on in some ways. Right. Um, then there are people who are, you know, trying to use AI to replace human beings, right? But there is also a, a middle ground of just average people who probably have no idea we're living in this this particular age. But I remember um, when I was in an undergraduate school, I was not able to take this because I was a transfer, but they had a whole course that was an interdisciplinary romantic era uh, course, right? So you're kind of looking at um, everything that was happening in art and culture and music and literature and, and really getting that immersive sense, which I thought was really good, cool because a lot was happening at that time in the world. Um, but it made me think as a medievalist, that's kind of how I always approached um, the middle ages, which of course have their own sort of sub subcategories and people argue all the time, but I always felt like you can't really just get it from one angle. You really have to see because there's something really amazing about how arts and music and religion and, and literature all kind of have a conversation back and forth with each other. But again, to what Rowena was saying, sometimes you really can't see what that was until you have the, the view from, from afar to be able to put those pieces together. And what's wild is when there's people who do things that are like incredibly visionary for their time way before a movement even happened. And that happens all over the all over the place, which I think is is super, super cool. It also just made me think of we we always like to put things in these sort of neat little boxes of history. And I think about how we talk about, you know, the fifties and the sixties and seventies and the eighties. And like on a cultural level, we consider the sixties really didn't get started until like nineteen sixty six and went to about 75 and then what we consider the 70s really is like 76 to 83 and the 80s didn't get properly started till 84 at the earliest <laughs> yeah but the way we talk about it it's like december 31st 1969 all right everybody change your vibes right now <laughs> it's like no that's not how it works but we like looking back to to have like you said these boxes because it makes i don't know maybe it just makes it makes history seem 
easier to get our hands around in some ways. Mm-hmm. Natanya, the example mm-hmm. of, the, of the Romantic era is really interesting to me because there's what like the Romantic poets presented themselves in their right. world as, but it's the same era that like all kinds of insane shit is going down with the labor movement and and European wars and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like you're all living in the same world, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it doesn't always seem like you are all living in the same world. No, not at all. Yeah, and there's, I think, sometimes, especially when we look at the past, and, like, if you imagine, like, trying to nab the aesthetic of, like, most period movies, do kind of, like, homogenize often what the past was like. And it's like, this is, like, this little slice of that this is 1830, and, like, this is our version of it, and it's very homogenous. Like, all the things fit together, like, nice, neat puzzle pieces. But in reality, there's all these weird outliers. There's all this other stuff happening. You know, you have... Like, for example, you have the romantic poets, but then you have, like, a lot of really weird German shit getting written at the same time. That you're like, this is bizarre. So things just haven't this changed, is just really. This is weird. No, not much. We have craft work no, in the 80s, like, so, you know. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, this is, this is just, this is weird. Like, this is, these things are happening concurrently. And I imagine that someone living in the middle of it, you're like, you don't know what's going to last as the dominant aesthetic and the dominant, you know, impression people carry of your time period. Like... We don't know what's going to carry as the dominant impression of what people will think that 2023 looked like, you know, in 50 years. You know, they're, you know, they're going to like, car- they're going to like caricature us with like, God only knows what. Seriously. They're going to be like, oh, you know, grandma, didn't you all have an AI best friend? And like, no, none of us did. Those were called Stop. Tamagotchis and they were from the 90s. Okay. And it was earlier. <laughs> Which are back, by the way. If anyone wants to buy one, that. you can buy yes. them again. So. You, you can get Furbies again, too. But I also Not think the stuff that nobody at the time thinks is going to be, like, the lasting thing. And that, like, I just thought about this today. If, like, in the mid-80s, you told somebody the most beloved musical artist working right now in 2023 will be Dolly Parton, you would get laughed <laughs> out of the room. <laughs> I mean, it's true, and why it's true is incredibly obvious, but at the time, she was kind of, you know, on a pop culture level, kind of a punchline, mm-hmm. which is terrible, but yet that's that's how it was, and and yet today, like, if you had said that at the time, no one would believe you. Just about everything from the 2020s, if you wrote it as a sci-fi book in the 1980s, people would be like... No, this is impossible. This would never happen. This is not well, and that's the weird thing about popularity because there's so many examples of, you know, even novelists as novels were being sort of created. You certainly have the Charles Dickenses and and the the Jane Austens, but I think a lot about um, Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf, who were you know lovers, but also both uh, writers and. It was Vita Sackville West who was selling like crazy. I mean, she was the pinnacle of a novelist, a, a wealthy, wrote about the elite, you know, these beautiful novels like The Edwardians, but it didn't have staying power like like Virginia Woolf, whether it's because Virginia had such a tra- traumatic and, and dramatic uh, life, but also just an incredible novelist of a skill that wasn't, I think, appreciated by the masses. And we see that with music too. There's Sometimes there's, music that is so popular for a time and then it just vanishes like i think about dave matthews band to just you know make our heads take a a 180 but when i was i remember growing up in the 90s and like 
people were obsessed with Dave Matthews band and would like travel miles to go to concerts, kind of like what people are doing at the Eras tour. And now my kids have no idea who Dave Matthews is at all. Not even a, 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 a drip, right? But at the time, if you look like album selling that and like Hootie and the Blowfish, right? <laughs> so I don't know. So much does change in interpretation as time goes on. Though that makes me think how much of that was those deadheads needed something to do once Jerry Garcia died. (laughs) They had fish, though. I mean, fish was there, too. They had fish, but I think there was a lot of like, who do we follow now? I don't know. Everyone's on a first name basis. They're like, we're going to go see Dave. And I'm like, who's Dave? And they're like, you know, Dave Matthews. And I was like, really? (laughs) I think it's interesting, too, because you kind of. When, especially when we're looking at stuff further back, kind of get into the process of like what gets canonized. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at like, for example, like you're talking about fiction. Um, yeah, we've got our, our Dickens and others from the Victorian era. And yes, they were very popular at the time, but there were a lot of other authors who were also really, really popular. popular. And for whatever reason, we don't read them today. And a lot of that is probably fair that some of it was, you know, a yeah. little on the on the penny dreadful side of things, um, but other of it is because it was women's fiction, yes. and it was seen as not important, and so we won't worry about it as we're creating our syllabi for literature of the nineteenth century because we're not going to, you know, that was just that's some, um, you know, that's just for women. And then you go back and like rediscover the stuff now, and it's like, oh, actually, this was pretty good, and it's actually very revealing about the time mm-hmm. period, and often has different flavors than some of the canon stuff that we have. Yeah. Um, has so uh, so some of what has staying power. It's like because someone assigned it staying power, like literally on a syllabus, someone assigned it, but because someone decided it was important. As a Shakespeare scholar, let me tell you <laughs> how how much one author can crowd out all the others. And once again, there are some reasons for that. Having studied lots of Shakespeare's contemporaries as well, there are many of them who are as good as he is in a lot of his plays. There's no one that touches him at his best. So they're like, they're, he just, he had something. He had something that others didn't. But there's other reasons too, because like Ben Johnson, Thomas Middleton wrote a lot of what were called city comedies. And they were so much of their time period because they took place in London of the late 16th, early 17th century. They were referring to specific neighborhoods and specific shops. And like, they were a lot like modern sitcoms. And if you try to watch a sitcom now from the 70s or 80s, especially the ones that weren't like the most popular ones, so many things are not going to make sense. So many references are going to go straight over your head. Or I think about even um, in Disney's Aladdin, Robin Williams as the genie and all of the pop culture references he throws out, some of which were obscure to me as a child at the time because they were made for the adults. And now I think if you showed those to a kid, like they'd have no idea. When something is so much of its moment, it doesn't have that staying Mm -hmm. power. It doesn't have the ability to last. Shakespeare didn't write any of those. The, the closest thing he wrote to a city comedy was Merry Wives of Windsor, which was not one of his better plays, and no one cares. So it's it's part of that, too. But at the same time, I would love to recover more of those things. The, mm-hmm. the theater I worked at used to have, they've changed a lot since the pandemic and having to restructure as so many theaters have, but they used to do a season called the Actors Renaissance season, which they used Shakespeare's rehearsal conditions as well as staging conditions, which was awesome. But they also used that time to recover a lot of contemporary plays, Shakespeare's contemporaries. So they did a lot of Johnson and Middleton and Thomas Kidd. And some of those, you're like, yeah, there's a reason that went to the rubbish heap of history. But some of them are 
fucking gems. Some of them are things that should be getting done in colleges that are doing, you know, a Midsummer Night's Dream for the 20th time that should be getting done on Broadway. And it's just people have forgotten. And it's it's a shame because they're really, really good plays. And I think that happens a little bit in every era, especially the mm -hmm. further removed you get from it, the more it becomes like the era of of one unified person or, or entity or something. Charlotte Smith was a proto-romantic poet, a woman, as you might be able to tell by her name, and majorly influenced William Wordsworth, who's sort of like the father of the romantic movement. And he would say repeatedly, I owe so much of this to this woman, to Charlotte Smith, who was writing about walking on cliff sides and being part of nature and, and you know, all of this stuff. But even though in his time he was saying this, it took almost 200 years for people to like find her work again, to republish it, to edit it, and to go, oh my gosh, you can see point for point where the influences were coming. But again, she was a woman and she did not have the staying power because it was considered less of, even though she had an advocate in yeah. William's Wordsworth. They're like, yeah. Well, good for Wordsworth for trying. How about good Coleridge? For... Like, yeah. Coleridge didn't even finish it. He didn't even finish yeah. it. Yeah. High as balls. Like, come on now. I think it's interesting, too, that um, like the lived experience of an era mm -hmm. and like how history writes it down can look very different. Like, I was thinking about this and I was like, I mean, I, I know who was president at any given point in my life. But with a few exceptions, it didn't define the era necessarily. Like I can look back and see how it influenced the era and how it was like part of part of that. But it in not in the same way that like for example, a, a dynasty mm -hmm. is like presented by history as being this this concrete measurement of time or or the reign of monarchs or things like that. And so it makes me wonder like is that an impression I have of of how history is presented that would feel accurate to the people who lived it? Or are they sitting there going like, you know, no, actually, I mean, I knew who was king at any given moment, but no, that was the year that my turnips went bad. That's how I remember that. You know, I, I remember that era as that's when my, my kids were little, or that was the year that we were building the new church in, you know, in town. Like that's, that's how I break up my life. Like how much, how much of that perception is, is, valid versus how much of it is um how we kind of apply it again posthumously to history yeah, i mean we'll talk about you know the the tutors the tutor people the people living in the tutor era and it's like they did not think of themselves as the tutors except for a very small number of them for whom that was their actual <laughs> last name that was their name <laughs> <laughs> or like i also think about you know the, the whole medieval era which did not think of itself as the medieval era because it's the Middle Ages. Like, who defines themselves as, yeah, we're in the middle of two better things. <laughs> we're just hanging out here in the That middle. is imposed upon them. Middle by, child syndrome, yeah. By Italians in the Renaissance who wanted to think themselves superior. But, like, people in the year 800 weren't walking around like, oh, darn, I wish I'd been born 500 years from now. What a shame. Or 500 years ago. Or yeah. 500 years ago. <laughs> but I'm stuck in the middle. Well, it's so funny, too, because, like, I, oh, who did this? It was, was it some podcast I was listening to talked about how, like, in almost every era, we disdain the era that immediately preceded us and we idolize and, and idealize the era before that. So, like, the people in the Renaissance were disdaining the Middle Ages. 
but they loved the ancient world. They were like trying to recreate all that. Whereas the Victorians, by that point, they're like, oh, not so much with the Age of Enlightenment and that things, but oh, the medieval era, we love that. So we're going we're gonna to try to bring that back in our art. Um, it's just a very sort of weird way that we try to set ourselves apart from the immediate past while borrowing the bits we like, not all the bits, but the bits we like and think are pretty. <laughs> And we, from, we did the same thing. We have to like wait just long enough until we kind of like forget the crappy parts. <laughs> and we're like, well, that was cool. I like that. I think we made a real effort sort of at the beginning of the aughts with steampunk because we were doing the same thing. We were like, no, the technology age, the sort of like post-war industrial world. Let's just go back to making our keyboards out of typewriter keys <laughs> and make dirigibles and <laughs> like wear Stop goggles all the time. But it became an aesthetic thing because we've advanced so far in technology that the idea of actually living like, you know, even a Victorian loosely had more technology than the people behind before them. Like, we're not going to actually do that. Right. <laughs> that's, 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 that's We're just going to make it look cool. We'll just stick some gears on some stuff and wear brown. And that'll be good. Because, of course, the Victorians only wore brown. Right. Yes. Entirely. And gray. And gray. Don't forget gray. Sad. Sad. Yeah. Just like the. Medieval. And black, because, you know, you have goth steampunk people. <laughs> Also, like, let's just, you know, think, yeah, steampunk is cool, and let's ignore, you know, colonialism. That was my time, biggest but, complaint know. at the time. I was like, so we're just not going to talk about labor <laughs> and industrialization and we're like colonialism. Smog, and cholera. Like, yeah. like, we're just going to just glide right over that and just keep cool aesthetic. Cool William aesthetic. Blake is crying in the corner with his little chimney sweeps. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of times when we when we go and pillage history, we're, it's not really history. It's it's a fantasy of the history, and and that's a whole complicated question, right? Of is that okay to do, and and you know who and when do we have a right to turn history into a fantasy? Um, that we probably don't have time to like dive into the whole thing right now, but I think it's a really interesting question. That I think it's when you look at the, like historical costuming, people have really interesting opinions about. Um, especially customers of color because they're like this never I never got to have like mm -hmm. why not reclaim this and make it my fantasy and let myself have a giant ball gown for the fun of it because it's fun because why the heck not you know and I think it's it's an interesting question of like is there is there such a thing as like ethical ethical use of historical fantasy and how do we parse that out and probably relates to the question of like how do we even parse out how history works like how do we parse out eras? How do we parse out where something comes from? I also love not just like the the version of the history we choose to believe, but also like the version of an era that an era itself tries to promote, like really consciously. Like, once again, we are the Renaissance, you know, whatever. We're the new stuff. The Pax Romana. Like, ah, oh, yes, it's the era of the Roman peace. You were at war constantly. Just not with yourselves anymore like you'd been doing for 60 years. It was it was lesser bloodbaths, you know. Yeah, you, you were like warring on your borders, but it was still it was not peaceful. But you called it the Pax Romana, liars. Kennedy's Camelot, you know, like the idea of these idealized eras that are was consciously that the right name. Do we really like really? I mean, maybe it was. Let's be real. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> it might but have been more accurate than they thought it was. Oh man. <laughs> But these, these, these things. They were setting that, themselves up to fail. With that yeah, come on, now. <laughs> a little like, bit, a little seriously. bit, yeah. But I think that's something super useful to us as writers of fantasy, along with like what part of the history do we want to borrow? What stories are your societies telling about themselves? Who in your world has a vested interest in saying, yes, this is a new era. We're doing something cool and new here, even if it's like not that much has changed since last year, buddy. But 
<laughs> okay. Or who in your era is trying to look backwards within the world and be like, nah, the degradations of the modern age we can't be having with this nonsense. We must look back to our noble forefathers. Like, who's doing that? And where are those tensions? I think that's a fun way to build depth into your world in a way that will make it feel real. What are the historians of your world calling the era they're living in or the eras before? And then that's 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 a lot of a fun thing to play with of how they think of their, you know, their past and what each what their history books look like. And I, I think that can also be an incredibly intimidating thing. It's like also it's sort of the same thing of like, what do they call their world? What do they call their their continents? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, I find myself when I'm writing historical documents within the world, there's a part of me that wants to be like super, super objective. And I'm like, that's a fool's game right there. So I'm like, embrace the subjectivity and figure out who is writing this and what their biases are and write from that. And that includes what they're going to call an era. Cause like, of course they're going to call the era where as far as they're concerned or whatever story they're trying to promote, they're going to be like, Oh yeah, that was the bad time. And we're now living in the good or we're now living in the terrible times. Boy was the golden age when I was a kid. And therefore <laughs> When men are men are women. Sure, it's terrible now, but if only you did what I was advocating for, we'd be ushering in a new golden age. Yes. If only you'd listen to me. I think it's interesting, too, to think about, you know, different parts of the world are going to bookend eras differently. So, you know, yeah, sure, your country might be ending their, you know, whatever dynasty, but the country across the ocean over there is like smack dab in the middle of theirs. And there's going to be influence between those, you know, shifts and and differences but um it's always interesting to me like you know what we call like the regency like in in french it's like empire right it's the you know, the empire so it's kind of funny because it's like what's going on in your country how are you labeling it does it actually overlap really well with other countries you know how they're labeling things not always perfectly usually not perfectly um, and what influences do they have on each other? And I think that's such a good example, too, of like the especially British centric c- concepts, because like occasionally in, in Regency stuff, you'll kind of like hear a mention of this Napoleon guy and like all the bloodshed that happened over there. But not really, you know, it wasn't I guess the French had their thing going on. over there. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> like a little busy, absolutely <laughs> topsy turvy, like. And I happen to be writing kind of in that era and, and it is alternate history. So I'm, I'm able to change some things. But like the more that I read, the more I'm like these idyllic English, you know, early regions stories. Meanwhile, like you look at the regent himself and what he's doing and his his wife and his mistress and his children and his, his daughter and then her daughter. Do- I mean, it's just like the tumult of it versus the sort of very sort of story of manners that we've come to know from, from Austin is just, it's so wild to, to, to hear about. And then I always talk about like wigs and and dentures and they're called Waterloo teeth, right? Because Waterloo was such a horrific battle that something that they did was actually harvest from the corpses, their teeth, because this is the age of dentures and things like that. And their hair was great to make wigs. Like that's what people did. We didn't have synthetic stuff. So like it's, there's this incredibly gruesome side to war that becomes almost like 
every day, like, oh yeah, these teeth, Waterloo teeth, just like with, with, we have uh, George Washington knowing that many of his teeth came from enslaved people. That's what they did. They're like, well, he died, but he got great teeth. So we don't want those to go to waste. Right. How absolutely body horror that is, but that was just daily life. And people <laughs> like, we have so many bodies. Let's just use what we got. Right. <laughs> no, no one's going to notice. <laughs> Waste not, what not. <laughs> And then it's funny because it's like so you've got you've got like Regency and like the Napoleonic you know Empire period, and then in in America it's like we call this the Federal period, and it's like we're like hi we're new here we're getting things set up and hi we'd really and like to be a country whatever. we're already in like we're, five wars yeah. every border something it's about what we're doing and and by the same token like yeah. that's also depending on where you are in the continent of North America. It's the quote unquote frontier exactly. era, which mm-hmm. is another, you know, talk about self mythologizing. Like, you weren't discovering shit. There were people there. But, <laughs> and, and then you, I mean, if you go into Mexico, it looks, you know, it's, it's a completely different thing there. And I don't know as much about that, but they had their own trajectory. And, and it does. You shift a few hundred miles, and the idea of an era can change mm-hmm. a lot. Just based on like what you're consuming. And, I wonder how how different that is becoming in our age of such global interconnectedness and instant communication and, and homogenizing in a lot of ways. Like, will that be as true of the 21st century as it has been of previous centuries? I mean, there's certainly a lot more interchange in terms of kind of we're aware of what's happening in other places, Mm -hmm. even to like the extent of like silly fads spread worldwide instead of just spreading, you know, more locally. Um, So yeah, I think that there is an interesting shift happening there that what's happening locally, I think still matters, but there's so much just interconnected Mm -hmm. exchange that it's, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine like a situation happening, like say, you know, in 1600 where there are things happening in, like eras kind of playing out in one part of the world that another part of the world is on a completely different time scale in some ways. Like we're in the middle of, you know, this King's reign and we're like, we're in the middle of this dynasty. We don't really know what, okay, cool, neat. Hi. Um, and, and when it comes to art and culture, that those things can't incubate independently the way that they once did to some degree geographically. I mean, we've been interconnected to some degree for a very long time, but you still had sort of a local incubation to some degree of what's happening in in Europe is not exactly the same as what's happening in Asia. It's not exactly the same as what's happening, um, you know, among the indigenous peoples of the Americas, that these are all happening simultaneously, but, but at least partially independently in a lot of ways. Do you think one of the ways that we deal with that is through this concept of like first, second, third world countries? We kind of almost create sub worlds. We we do, and yet at the same time, that is also false, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is something we're imposing, and it's something that we are often creating. So because yeah, so, such, because yeah. the United States, European countries exert such power, I think, over other nations, either economically or because we're selling them weapons that they're going to use in bad ways, or because we outright topple their governments, which the United States has done. Like, I don't think that was as common a few hundred years ago to have that, you know, 
it was it was it was much harder to influence even your neighbors, let alone people on the other <laughs> side of the world in that kind of way that we no, that we, we can just showed now. up and set up camp instead. Yeah. <laughs> You had to actually like go and show yeah. up and, and, and physically take over. You can just yeah. slip those bombs under the table right there and hope no one notices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, like the, the framing of, you know, third world, that's evolved over to like the initial mm-hmm. concept, which was still this very self-centered concept, was just NATO countries are the first world, Warsaw Pact countries are the second world, and the third world is just everybody who's not that. Everybody and is. it didn't mean anything beyond and we've like completely lost that second world concept completely like it that that got forgotten completely now we just use the word the term third world to reference something else entirely and then there's people who think like someone was talking about uh like kenya people think that kenya is a third world country and then they go there and it's like this super huge cities and technology you go to nigeria it's the same thing we don't we've been brainwashed yeah. because it's it's well, very convenient to think that an entire what do people th- yeah like what do people think third world means too like it that's it's such a vague concept like i think people do like everyone's living in a shack mm-hmm. or like like what does that mean to you right that um yeah I think it also speaks to the experience of when we are setting up how we view our world and how we view eras and epics and things like the degree to which you are close to or in power um, probably affects how you think about that. Um, and not just political power, but social power and economic power too. Mm-hmm. So if you are someone who does not have a lot of economic power or social power or political power, the way that you're marking your time and your eras may be very different from someone who is actually in the process of creating those machinations, right? That also ties together too with the idea of transferring power and what happens when the power dynamics shift, what happens when there is some kind of change. And this I think is especially useful for to us as writers because those are often points where you can get some really good plot out of it, yeah. you know, when <laughs> When the king dies, like, uh-oh, he left no heirs. What do we do now? The entire premise of, of my often cycle begins with the dictator is dead. Long live the republic. Like, there is a change happening in this moment. What's going to happen? Have we planned for this? Like, do we have a plan for what happens when, when, when this power <laughs> dynamic shifts? Or is it a free-for-all? What goes on? And I think that's such a fun place to explore the tensions in the world that you've built Mm-hmm. And how the factions use those tensions to try to to grasp power peacefully or not when something like that changes. And how much a change like that will even impact some people. Like people on the lowest economic scales may not even have us. Maybe their coins will change in six years. And they're like, oh, right. We have somebody else on here, right? That, but, <laughs> but they may be not even using coin and and it's it's so fascinating too to see how you know the medieval life went far past the medieval period like people were still dressing and cooking and singing and all the folk songs that went on for a very very long time if you look even the turn of the of the 20th century there were areas of the world that pretty much lived like you know it's rare now because of technology but it took a long time to get there and those i always find that sort of 
area of that liminality is very powerful, right? There's something really cool about that. And you see that occasionally. And I think we talked about this maybe when I, when I was on, but in the uh, 2005 Pride and Prejudice film, Mrs. Bennett is wearing older style costumes than the girls, right? They're, they're much more sort of empire style, you know? Um, And it's so rare that you see that because I think costume designers often get so wrapped up in having this perfect vision of an era but forget that there are dresses being reused constantly, all these sorts of things. Um, yeah. Downton Abbey did that too with um, mm-hmm. the way the dowager dresses yes. is very much of an earlier era. And it even begin, you know, it, it shifts over time. And she starts wearing things that are clearly like influenced by 1910s, 1920s fashion, but sort of grafted onto a silhouette that she's more comfortable with because mm-hmm. it's what, what was true of her youth. I love that. And I love when a movie or a series lets us show, lets us see fashion changing. Mm-hmm. I think that's so much fun. It's like, I'm like, I really appreciate your attention to detail there when you're you're showing us the, the changes over time. <laughs> what was it? It was Carnival, which was set in the 1930s. And so much of the costuming was, here is a nice dress from the 1920s that we've now like distressed. And, you know, but like nobody, you know, if you're poor and in the 1930s because of the depression, you're going to keep using that 15-year-old dress no matter how raggedy it got because you had no other options. And- mm-hmm. So I'll always push back a little. I haven't seen that, but I'll always push back a little bit. And I'm like, people knew how to take care of their clothes and how to mend and how to make things over. Mm-hmm. And so you see amazing things where people are like, you know, taking something that's entirely out of fashion mm-hmm. and you take it apart at the seams and you put it back together and it looks new. You know, and we see, you know, textiles getting reused over and over again. It's one of the reasons that there are, you know, certain eras and styles of gowns and dresses that we just don't have because they were really easy to reuse. Yeah. So it's like they just didn't survive because people were like, eh, well, I don't know where this looking like this, but. If I remember correctly, that is some of literally what they did. They took a 20th dress and like took it apart. And, and mm-hmm. then rebuilt it and mm-hmm. stuff like this. So they, I think they did incorporate that into yeah. how they yeah. how And they I was going to say, I think the, it depends the on the person. Show. Like, I think it depends on the person and their desire to, to change and what that means. Because to get back to fiction, if you are able to either remake or, you know, to get the newest fashion tilt of hat or whatever, that can say a lot about about who you are as a character. I mean, my husband has not changed the way he's dressed for so long. I finally got him to stop wearing cargo pants and then they came back, you know, like, (laughs) and I know that there were people like him in the world, even though there were some more strictures around it, but I think it's interesting to see who adapts and who doesn't. And that can be used as a great character piece. And then you've got the Oscar Wilds of the world who just did their own complete thing, right? Like he was living in an era where people were like, I mean, we're funky now, but what what is this man doing? You know, <laughs> he's. I'm wearing a cape wearing, because I yeah. want to. <laughs> because capes are cool. So I think capes are fat. Why don't we wear capes more often? They get caught in everything. I think it's they do. Awesome. But wearing a nice little short cape, I'm telling yeah. you, it's perfect. Yeah. Some dolmens. I would love. Oh, I would yes, love for those to come back. Exactly. Opera capes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in, in especially in modern fashion too, some of it is like once again, who are you? Who who are you, and what are you comfortable in? Anytime that the the fashion of our modern age goes to like very narrow and straight, I'm just like, no, that is not how my human form is built. <laughs> you know what I look good in? I look good in 40s and 50s and early 60s things that are more hourglass shaped. That is who I am. And so like most of my dresses are not actually vintage vintage, 
they're the 2000s doing vintage, mm-hmm. but it's it's what I'm comfortable in. And it will always be what I'm comfortable in. It does not matter mm-hmm. how fashions change. It's like sometimes it's like, I just can't wear that. I That's not going to work on, on, my, on my body, on my physical human form. Um, I never wore skinny jeans. I hate them. All the years I, they're popular, I'm like, no, those are terrible. Why are you all doing this to yourselves? <laughs> I love that. So my, my grandmother recently passed away at 96. And one of the coolest things about her is that by the time, so she was born in the 20s, right? So talk about just crazy changing fashion every five minutes. She went to college with two dresses because that's all they had um, post, post uh, depression era. But by the 1980s, she just started wearing flowy garments. I mean, she just like kind of rocked caftans and scarves and beautiful textiles. And she still wore a beehive until the day she died and would be mad that people didn't know how to tease hair anymore. But she had this timeless quality about her that made her almost ethereal in her, in her presence. And she'd walk into a room and you'd be like, who is this woman? And she was just like post-fashion. <laughs> she just made her her own. Hashtag goals. Yes. For real. Hashtag goals. She was also six feet tall. So nice. That- that part didn't hurt either. I didn't get that part. With or without the beehive. Yeah, she was say. taller with the beehive. Yeah. So she was she was six six feet tall plus about three and a half inches of hair. That's that is impressive. That will command a room. Yes. So I I what are some of the things I mean we, I feel like we've talked a lot about the historical stuff. There are some books and series that I think do this pretty well, but I think it's a very hard thing to do, whether you're in a secondary world or you're writing historically uh, influenced or historically even like true historical stuff. Are there any that, that, that you all kind of look to or things that you've done in your writing? Secondary world fantasy tends to be really bad about like time changing at all. Like it's, there's so much things of like, like, yes, for the past 5,000 years, this, these have been the borders and these have been the societies. Don't get and, me fucking started on Game of Thrones and how <laughs> apparently nothing has changed for 6,000 years. They have the same technology. Mm-hmm. They wear the same clothes. They have the same goddamn last names. Like, I just... I, they eat the same honey locusts. It's all the same. <laughs> we locked down the Seven Kingdoms. We don't need to... <laughs> We built a wall. That's always worked. 6,000 years of walls. And that's it. We, we're done. We got it locked down. Game over. But like so much is like that. So that the idea that there is change at all, like even, I mean, you know, with Tolkien, you have, you know, the stewards of Gondor who like at, at no point did they go, look, we're in charge. No, we can, we can just be king. It's okay. <laughs> Really, nobody's going to show up and tell us we're not. So, so why are we why are we maintaining this fiction? I kind of love that. I kind of love that though because I think sometimes we do. Like that's a very human thing that we like have this fiction or this illusion, and we kind of just keep playing it, right? Like this is the story we tell ourselves, and so we're just going to keep doing it. It's working for us. The reality is rather different from the fiction, but we're just going to roll with it. And like I, I, I kind of, I kind of love that. Cracks me up. Like that's that's exactly that's exactly what someone would do if they wanted to just like not rock the boat and stay in power and be like, yeah, totally still the steward. Look, I'm just, just gonna come back and it's like, yeah, <laughs> thumbs up, great. Just keep waiting. Look, I'm, I'm gonna put out just a bunch of edicts and it's gonna be really unpopular, but you really can't be mad at me because I'm just holding I'm the just seat. A steward. <laughs> just the steward. Now bring me some more tomatoes. 
But I mean, there's been a couple that, as always, I'm going to go back to Fonda Lee's Green Bone say. Saga, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's going to be my go to till I die, I think, in terms of like well, it's, books. I'm, but, what's so good in that one is it's so subtle how the passage yeah. of time is marked. It is in it's it's so embedded in the world building. It's in their clothes. It's in the technology they're interacting with each day. It's going from, you know, the the barely having access to a phone to having a set like it, but it, no one's like commenting on it. It's just it's just embedded in there, and it's so good. Yeah, she never like is like, and now we have cell phones, and we're gonna. And go, now it's the nineties. Like <laughs> everybody's listening to Hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> Matthew's band. She did such a fantastic job too of like. You 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 really you really fall in love with these characters, or or you like love to hate them, whatever whatever it is for each particular character, and I think that that one of the pitfalls I think of doing transitions within a fantasy book or series is that your reader falls in love with what you're doing, and then you change it, and they're like, well, but I wasn't, I was reading, I was reading, <laughs> you know, I was I was all in for you know. Georgian fantasy I really didn't want to read Regency and you changed it on me and I don't love it but I think that the fact that you know it was so character driven Mm. and and you fell in love with those characters and you wanted to see what happened to them and and what all kind of you know affected and that it was rolled out slowly so that you weren't gobsmacked with it and just kind of like what just happened I think that that made it really effective because I I mean I'm not going to necessarily um you know not all fantasy or fiction in general needs to show changes of power or major transitions or eras moving between. It's totally fine to stick with one and say, fall in love with this thing. It's going to last for, you know, less than five years and it is what it is and enjoy it. But if you're going to do it, you have to keep in mind that part of what you're doing is making a contract with the reader and a pact with them about they're reading it because they like it. So you can't take away the thing that they like. I think someone who's done this well that that I that I've been following for 17 years now is Joe Abercrombie because he took the first law series and then has continued it through generations. So you kind of start in this very almost like post-Renaissance era of like warring states, kind of an Italian. And, and again, it's it's very it's secondary world, but it's very adjacent to history. So you kind of got almost the George R. R. Martin flavor where you can kind of recognize where we're pulling stuff from. And then there's like wars and like dynasties changing. And then it's this age of discovery. And then you get these books like Red Country, where people are literally discovering a a new country that people happen to live in um, that's over into the West. And, you know, you get this next generation of people setting up the same strictures that you saw falling apart in the worlds that you were reading before. And the characters are getting older. They're getting older and they're not able to do what they were doing before. So you're kind of following them and and some of them die and some of them die terribly but he's so good at bringing in new characters that you love and then you get to see these other characters from their perspective as someone of a new generation and in the mad world series it's all about industrialization it's all about uh, colonialization it's all about what happens when people get people of all you know backgrounds all of a sudden get equalized because of of money and how how that changes people and how these individual characters shift as this next generation and then you also see how that impacts the crown and all the the problems that industrialization brings and how the the royalty itself it's blamed for either being 
too forgiving or or too uh, hard against. And then you have these factions arising up of, of the labor movement. And it's a really interesting commentary. And he's gone to say like, this is definitely his his reaction to a lot of the political atmosphere of the last you know 10 years in particular. But I think it worked really well. And, and I just, I felt like I would get to a point, like I would never want to read another book where this character wasn't there, but then they kind of always show back later. And what's even cooler is that he has like a, a, a series of standalones in the same world. And not every author is afforded to be able to do this, right? There's like 12 books at this point, but you you hear stories like um, uh, there's certain characters that you're, you're literally watching the mythology happen. And then later, 20 years later, they're talking about the book that you read and the characters in it, and you're hearing how they've changed the story and you're, you know, and you know how it really happened. And that's, that's rare to find, I think. And, and again, most people are not afforded to have that amount of time to be able to tell something. And I think it's the most successful when you're able to just take your time and telling that story, um, especially in something that's more of a, you know, old school fantasy kind of setting. Yeah, I think it's definitely rarer in our, our speculative fiction genres than it is in like a straight up historical fiction. Man, I love a generational saga. I love it. Give it to me. But Rowena, like you were saying, it especially I think in fantasy or whatever, you would have to key that in like that needs to be on the jacket cover that this is a multi-generational saga. <laughs> and then you'll get the readers who want that. Um, but it's much less common. And I, I I wonder why that is. I wonder why that's sort of the case. That it's hard to come up with many examples of someone that really does show the shift of time. Especially if you don't have 12 books to do it in. I mean, gosh, who would write 12 books all in the same world so and actually get weird. to do that and then just like weirdo. keep writing more of them and Can't yet think of you anyone. don't have a whole lot of passage of time because no yours take place in a really a really tight a really tight time I period think, of those 12 books i think it's about four months total that passes. <laughs> it's like a D campaign at that point <laughs> like we've been yeah. playing for 17 years how much time has passed oh about two weeks <laughs> yeah i mean i did i i I'm going to have to make that very clear because in my Queens of Fate series, I, I skipped 10 years mm. through each three books, mm -hmm. but I also needed to be able to tell the one version of the Arthurian beginning to end. And there's no way you can do that in real time without writing 35 books. Um, but it, it is hard and it's something that I worry about and I hope <laughs> I did, I did well, but um, we'll see what happens. I, I've been watching um, for all mankind which is an alternate history TV show in which the Russians are the ones who get to the moon first and it changes everything in terms of in terms of the space race because you know if they get to the moon first then we can't just like get to the moon and then say we did it and and nothing else happens like now now we have to be invested in this and it is it is now in the fourth season and like the first season covered, from 1969 to like 1977 and then jumped ahead to in the second season was the mid 80s and then this third season was the you know, mid 90s and then it's currently 2002 in the fourth season three years ago right yeah correct. exactly correct. which is but you know it has to be like here is 2003 which is a completely different 2003 you know and each season begins with a sort of montage to sort of like catch you up with the history that did change and didn't change and you know and it has like a whole different like lineage of presidents between 
1969 and 2003 and and doing that work of like doing a very quick montage of here is what happened in this decade so now now you know and it's like in 2003 and now we're on mars and you know just run with it kids but it, it does a very good job of doing that with a lot of shorthand and a lot of like even though with the changes that have happened there like within that world like john um john lennon was never killed so like they like create a thing just like john lennon's you know big concert in 2001 that you know oh, never happened <laughs> bill clinton was never president so therefore there is never any you know any big you know sex scandal within within the white house and so Therefore, Al Gore does become president in the And so it's implied there's no, there is no 9-11 in that world, though it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say what didn't happen. But you know, like, like so much of where they are is in such a different place. And but still having to communicate that in a way that what's going on there makes sense to the audience, because you're still playing to an audience who lived through a 2003, if not that 2003. Well, and that's kind of back to what we were saying earlier about these sort of these these moments that just sort of like crack open a world right there are these these i don't know the, the best term but just something that it's it fundamentally shakes people's identities right we have obviously 9-11 we have um you know the 1066 <laughs> we have you know there, there's lots of examples through time there's the bombing of pearl harbor kind of where were you when dot 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 the questions that you know your your children would, would ask you um and and i and i wonder how much of that influences the identity of the age that we're talking about right we have this issue a lot right now i am like a super elder millennial, like I'm literally the cutoff, right? So I was born in 81. I I never quite felt Gen X and I never really quite felt millennial. But I think that the biggest difference is like, I have cousins that are two or three years older than me that did not have internet in high school. And mm. there's something about that formative access to technology and information that I think has changed my cultural identity as a person as a growing brain in that time, right? I had a cell phone in college. Like I could just call anybody anytime I wanted to. That was not possible for, for most of my cousins that are a few years older than me. And I can see the difference in how they relate to social media. They feel like everything that came afterwards, and this is obviously not a blanket statement, but I think, again, it comes down to us as, as figuring out what our identity is based on these huge cultural shifts, whether they're war or, you know, technology or um, labor, as we were talking about before. It makes me how much of an American right now is how you felt after 9-11, right? How much of that American identity is is based on that, if you remember it or not, if you weren't even born yet. How different is that? How how different do you see that? My parents who lived through the 70s and you know the, the 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 gas shortages and all of this stuff in Nixon. I was just talking to my dad about this. It's like summer of 69, you had this incredibly hopeful world of everyone just loving each other, but a lot of people didn't. And they weren't super surprised when 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 Nixon eventually became president and how much of a 180 that was in that time period. If you think about the 60s as we think about them, it really was this very, very short blip in time. And then not everyone experienced the 60s as the nope. 60s because you still had like, you know, vacuum cleaner salesmen and, you know, people who were very ordinary, who were not engaged in most of the things that we think of as the 60s. 
Yeah, my and my parents missed it entirely. Like <laughs> <laughs> So they yeah, literally missed it. <laughs> but what a difference That's hilarious. Too. Like my, my my dad apparently um was in Chicago for the Democratic National Convention of 68. Um he was there in a basement going to a concert and they came out and saw a bunch of cops and were like, we better go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, he was so deeply a hippie. Oh, that's that that was wow. Oh, that's but, but there's, there's of... so many of those little hinge points. I think it might, my, my dad was of an age to be drafted and he knew he was in like, I don't know. Cause they, they knew kind of when the numbers and the birth dates were coming up. Mm-hmm. If the war had gone on for another year, he would have been drafted. It would have been a completely other story. My dad, who's, you know, the pacifist, a war pro- a protester, total hippie musician guy. What, how that would have shaped me as a person to have a father who was a veteran who had gone against his will mm-hmm. or even maybe not survive. Like we think of all these little tiny micro hinge points that, that do eventually define an era or even a, like we, I mentioned earlier, like a, a zeitgeist, right? what is the spirit of the time versus what is the actuality of the time the, the there's there's so much more subtlety i think between all of that stuff and it might be a, a fun thing to think about for for us as writers and for our listeners as writers we talk a lot about tentpole concepts in a world we talk about you know the this is the big idea that sort of makes this world what it is but tentpole moments when you were saying like i'm not sure what i would call these kind of things i was like i think that's what i would call them tentpole moments 9-11 is a tentpole moment for people who were alive and old enough to remember it. Um, so yeah, when, when you're building your world, even if you have a very, a very tight time frame of your story, what are the tentpole moments for your characters? What are the things that they remember that stand out for them? And in the course of your story, are they going to live through a new tentpole moment? Like, is that what's happening? Um, and how will that affect them and change things? I mean, when I was planning Velocity of Revolution, what I like I did like this sort of generational chart of, you know, you know, each character like based on when they were born and what did they live through and what were thus those those tenpole mm-hmm. moments to them and how is their generation defined in contrast to, to the others? Like who lived through this war like as you know, with a, you know, at least cognizant mind, you know, even if they were young, they still lived through a war as opposed to somebody who, you know, was a toddler and thus didn't really make that same impression upon them as opposed to, you know, the younger generation from that who has lived in this new occupied world all their life. And so that's all they know. And Mm -hmm. that creates completely different frameworks of how they're going to interact with the world and thus interact with the story. That's something I've thought so much about writing Arthuriana because of the compressed generations. That's actually what kind of inspired the first book, this idea Mm -hmm. that if you were of a class where you did get married young and you had to have a child right away to ensure, you know, all these things, you could have a 20 year old child while you were in your mid thirties, right? You very realistically could. And then the next generation, you know, in, in my story is Gowan is at the front at 15, you know, he's huge. He's, he's powerful. He gets sent out to, you know, bash as many skulls as possible at that time thinks it's kind of cool. Cause he's 15, 16 years old. Like that's great. But by the time he's like 22, his body's already ruined. You know, he's had mm-hmm. so many injuries and he's a huge guy. So it's like, you can't just, you know, suck it up. And, and when you lose that, but then he sees his brothers who are literally a further generation than even his mother is 
they're fighting for fun and scuffling around and they've never killed a person before. They've never seen a battlefield because they've been given this peaceful era within, you know, a, a 10 year period. And that does fundamentally change, you know, it allows you to have a childhood. I thought a lot about that. Like what is childhood? And so much in history, women in particular were robbed of childhoods, right? The teenage concept of course is, is much more modern, but you see this ability of, of young men more to be allowed of this time of dalliance, this time to explore the world, this time to travel, to learn, to be afforded to become a full person. It's not as common um, for for women to do that, especially if they are in roles of power. And and again, if if they have to secure lines or if there's just not enough kids in the farm, right? <laughs> you know, well, Annie started her period, so we know if we, can, if we have to, you know, we need more kids. We need to have the farm keep going. And, you know, it's, it really... I think childhood as a concept is such a fascinating topic across socioeconomic lines, uh, you know, war, colonialization, um, and then the perceptions of of cultures upon other cultures Mm. about what it becomes sexualized, what becomes not. Um, And that's, again, I think great things to look at when you're writing stories, you know, where, where does childhood stop? Where does adulthood begin? And that does change from culture to culture throughout time. Speaking of time, so we have come to the end of this episode. This the end of our era here, and the the beginning of a new. And so, I think it's appropriate at the end of this moment for Rowena to give us one last gift to to bring to to this world we've been building all this time before she sails off to the west or. Returns to Ithaca or wakes up next to Suzanne Pluchette. (laughs) Well, somewhere in the world, there are goats. But the goats are basically like unicorns, except they're goats. Um, And so the goat milk can be used for various like healing and almost all chemical applications. So this is a, a special type of of goat milk making them more like unicorns but they don't have the horns and they're goats but their their milk is is not quite magical because it doesn't fit with our magic system um to have magic goat milk i don't think but um is applicable in all kinds of healing salves and drinks and is an antidote to poisons and things like that and the goat herders who keep these goats um, are like very highly regarded and um, they, they, they keep their their secrets and they have they have like goat herding like grazing lands all over and they're allowed to like move between them without anyone you know claiming land um, that they can't use because it's the special goats and I think they probably have at least one like like herding pattern that uses a gate that they have to go through a gate to like to take the goats for like their summer pasture or whatever. I'm, Maybe that's how the goat milk ends up being so so potent. I don't know. I like that. Yeah. Yay for goats. Yay for goats. Awesome. Well, it's been a blast for the last several years and and this evening as well. Yes, and and as with so many things, we are sad for one era to end, but excited, so excited, Natanya, <laughs> to have you on board with us. Um, I think certainly our listeners will be able to tell from this episode that uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be 
a grand new era indeed i will self-mythologize that for us right now it's going to be well, there there i will not try to fill the shoes i will try to cobble my own and maybe there yeah. <laughs> we will we will certainly not be the last that we see of rowena no, and not at all. um that's exciting that's that's how things grow and change right exactly so hello and goodbye and listeners thank you for being with us through another another wild year Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. I'm so thrilled that we've been on this journey together up until now, and I will miss Rowena immensely. But I'm very excited for where we're going in 2024 and beyond. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a moment to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Blue Sky as at worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com we also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs>